please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. Our passage for the fifth and final week in a row is James 4, 1 to 10. And we're going to begin by reading this passage in its context, starting up in James 3, the second half of verse 10, then continuing through chapter 4, verse 10. Again, that's James 3, 10 through James 4, 10. James follows up his instructions about the dangers of the tongue with this. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace? Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. In Matthew four eighteen to 22 Jesus calls His first two disciples to full-time ministry by saying, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. I've long thought this uh, calling quite appropriate since the making of disciples is actually so much like fishing. I mean, whether you're using a net like the disciples did or, or maybe a modern fishing line, either way, right, you can't predict which sort of fish you'll catch or how many you'll catch or even when you'll catch them. It's all kind of guesswork. It all depends on which sort of fish happen to be in the water where you cast your net or line and whether they're, they're hungry or not. And in the same way, the evangelist is simply unable to predict who will respond to the gospel. You can try to think of which approach would present the gospel in the best light. You can try to discern what spiritual issues the other person is wrestling with and and what gospel truth to address with those issues. You know, try to pick the right lure. They can even try to, to be intentional about putting that net or lure in the most favorable position to catch as many disciples as possible. But at the end of the day, none of that matters if the fish aren't biting doesn't matter what the evangelist does. They simply cannot create spiritual hunger any more than a fisherman can create hungry fish. These things are in the hands of the Lord. And when a fish gets on the line, or as the fisherman begins to pull in the net, as the disciples start to do in Luke 5, you have to be careful so as not to break the line or tear the net. I think you see Jesus practice this sort of thing throughout His ministry. He always seems to be very careful to bring along His disciples slowly. He understands, for instance, that his true identity is is too much to bear at first. And so he just gives hints, kind of alludes to it rather than cryptic, alludes to it rather cryptically, or he demonstrates it with signs and wonders. And then when his disciples seem ready to accept it, he comes out with it more plainly. It's the same with his crucifixion and resurrection. He understands that that event would be more than his disciples could comprehend right off the bat. And so he waits. He waits until after they've made a battle-tested profession of faith before he begins to speak about that event for the very first time in Matthew 16. 
In fact, it would seem that even in the the hours before his death, Jesus is still practicing this sort of consideration. In in John 16, verses 12 to 13, he predicts this coming ministry of the Spirit to the disciples by saying, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So it would seem that there are some truths about himself which Jesus knew the disciples wouldn't be able to understand until even after he was raised from the dead. It's this sort of tension that I often feel when I'm discipling others. Our sinful flesh naturally resists God's efforts at sanctification. Even after we become Christians, it pushes against his word. And this means that growth is very often painful. And the question that I often wrestle with is, how do you pull on the line just hard enough that the disciple will grow closer in their relationship with God instead of just struggling there in the water without at the same time breaking the line? In fact, this is a question I wrestle with weekly as I prepare my sermons. Over the past couple of weeks, I've said that Satan attempts to diminish the church's witness either by bullying Christians into silence or by getting them so distracted and confused with worldly thinking that there's no spiritual vigor in their life. Well, it's that influence that I honestly feel like I'm contending with weekly. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are essentially three cardinal sins to modern preaching. The first is to be boring. If there's at least one idea that we brought into the church, it's this idea that all preaching, in order to be good preaching, must be entertaining. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that preaching ought to be boring. After all, I don't think the Bible is by any means a boring book. So if a pastor is properly bringing out the meaning of a text, then the message ought to be at least halfway engaging, or else they're not doing justice to the text. But all the same, I think there's a difference between being engaged in the text and being entertained by the message, and the expectation often seems to tilt towards the latter. What I mean is that it would seem more and more that the typical congregant isn't looking for a message that challenges them as much as they are one that amuses them. They want colorful illustrations, poignant quotes, and of course at least a few jokes scattered in there for the sermon to be really good. I think this is one way that the world has affected our thinking. The world has got us all to think that all content should be presented in an entertaining format, whether that be the news or education or a sermon. It's all supposed to amuse us as well as inform us. I feel that tension as I step into the pulpit every week, the pressure to put the medicine of the gospel inside something that's at least a little sweet, the pressure to be truthful as well as entertaining. I think most of you are already painfully aware of the fact that I'm do a pretty good job of resisting that temptation. The second cardinal sin of preaching is to preach a very long sermon. And alas, once again, I am among the chief of all sinners. But honestly, guys, I don't know what to do. Most sermons today are between 20 and 28 minutes in length, about the span of your average TV show. And while I understand the limits of a person's attention span, the reality of the situation is that for most of you, I have this Sunday worship service with you, and that's it. And I I don't know how I'm supposed to combat the sheer volume of the world's input into your lives in a 25-minute message. So again, there's this tension. Do I preach shorter messages that will hold the attention of more people, or, or do I preach longer messages that will provide the content that aids spiritual growth. Hopefully one day I can figure out how to do both. So, boring sermons are bad, long sermons are bad. And finally, perhaps worst of all, is the sad or angry sermon. Am I right? Is there any kind of sermon that we all dread more than the fire and brimstone sermon? Start talking about things like the wrath of God or hell or a need for repentance. And I mean, you can practically see people heading for the exits. And yet, fact is, Jesus preached on hell more than anyone else. The greatest evangelist who ever lived, and he never seemed to avoid the subject. He had no hesitation at mentioning that truth. And yet, I'll tell you, whenever I come to passages that deal with these uncomfortable doctrines, I always ask myself, how much is too much? 
How do I get the congregation to feel the weight of this concept? How do I get them to feel the difficulty of this idea, whether it be one of the harder commands in Scripture or the doctrine of hell or or the the doctrine of divine sovereignty? Uh, How do I get them to deal with all of that without breaking them with it? It's a tension I feel often. In fact, it's one that I'm wrestling with today. Perhaps you can blame it on modern psychology's growing influence in the church, or perhaps you can blame it on youth programs that have adopted an entertainment model of church. Maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe it's other stuff. Either way, it would seem that the church has increasingly adopted this idea that the only emotions worth having, and most especially within the church, are positive emotions. And if you don't believe me, just crack open a modern hymnal. Just try to find... A hymn of confession, for instance, or of contrition over sin, or even of God's judgment of sinners. Guys, they're just not there. In fact, I've even had to import such songs from outside sources to include them in our worship. Consider just how many of the Psalms read like this. To you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry out to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. That's Psalm 28, 1-5. And that's a part of the inspired hymn book that we find in Scripture. And yet I doubt we'd ever find such language in a modern day hymnal. Again, it would seem that's because we've bought into this idea that the only emotions worth having, worth singing about, right, or praying over, anything like that, or those emotions that are even compatible with the gospel are happy ones. Ones that make us feel good. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if if David came into the church today while writing Psalm 32? You guys know Psalm 32, right? It's one of the psalms that David apparently wrote after being confronted with his over his sin with Bathsheba. And in it he writes of the time before his confession, saying, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It would seem that David was severely depressed in this psalm. He's so anxious over his sin that It would appear he's probably not even eating. The psalm says that his bones wasted away and his strength was dried up. I tend to think that if David were to bring that sort of attitude into the church today, he'd probably get one of two responses. Either he'd be told to to chill out, relax. You know, gee, David, don't beat yourself up so much. Yeah, you did something bad, but just remember, God's a good God. He's a loving God. So, you know, don't take it so seriously. Or, and I'm afraid this might even be the more common response, (laughs) he might be told, let's get you on some antidepressants. It sounds like you have some kind of imbalance going on here. Either way, it's not normal or healthy to feel that way. So let's go to the doctor and see if he can give you something to make you feel better. Now, of course, that's not to say that antidepressants are always bad. They're not. It's just that in this particular case, neither of these responses would have addressed David's real issue, which was his sin. We have to understand that not all negative emotions are bad or unhealthy emotions. It's quite healthy, for instance, to feel sorrow over the passing of a loved one. Even for the Christian who has the hope of heaven, we still mourn, right? Just not as those without hope. It's likewise healthy to feel anger over the injustice that occurs in this world. It's the desire for personal vengeance that's the issue, according to Jesus, not mere anger. Our problem as creatures is not so much that we feel good or bad, but that sin has made it so that we tend to feel good or bad about the wrong things. 
This is when negative emotions are unhealthy, when they're felt over the wrong things, just as when positive emotions are likewise also unhealthy when they're enjoyed over the wrong things. The Bible tells us that there's, there's actually tremendous profit to be had in what we typically label as negative emotions. Take sorrow, for instance. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And as if this weren't enough, the preacher then continues verses 3 to 6. He says, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. I don't know if you're paying attention there, but the preacher's point is not that we should feel sorrowful for sorrow's sake. No, he says, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The idea is that sorrow is actually an emotion that's necessary sometimes to experience genuine happiness. That's why he says to go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting, for, quote, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The idea is that the contemplation of death, which which makes us feel bad, is necessary to experience both the blessings of this life as well as the next. And then, of course, the fool tries to avoid that experience of sober contemplation through his mirth. So his point is not that laughter is entirely bad altogether. This is the same man, after all, who says in chapter 3, verse 4, that there is, quote, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So his point is not that it's wrong to be happy or to laugh. The point, rather, is that sorrow isn't always bad. And in fact, in some ways and in some instances, it is even preferable to laughter. So clearly not all negative emotions are unhealthy. Have you, have you ever considered, for instance, that while we have depictions in the gospel of Jesus feeling tired or angry or sad, we don't have a single record of him ever laughing. This is a man who never once sinned, a man who's thinking about the world around him always completely accurately. And the picture we have of him is as a man who is incredibly sober-minded. Isaiah 53 even calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Again, so why why do we not ever mourn in our worship again? The fact is, just as our body has physical pain receptors to warn us of the danger of our mortal flesh, so also do our emotions often act as spiritual pain receptors to warn us of the dangers to our soul. Of course, they'll malfunction from time to time, just as our own bodies will sometimes malfunction. And so we have to train ourselves through the renewing of our mind to know how to feel as we ought. But all the same, there are moments when those negative emotions should be there. In fact, they probably should be there much more often than they are. After all, there is much that's wrong with this present world, which means that there's much to mourn over, not the least of which, not the least of which, is our own sin. For just over a month now, we've been exploring James' instructions for spiritual adultery. We've seen him explain the source of adultery back in verse 1. There we learn that the source is his reader's idolatrous faith. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Basically, there are things that these people want, things that they think they need badly enough that they're willing to sin to get it. And that's where the idolatry part comes in. If you love something more than God, it's idolatry. And that's what's happening with these people. They're so consumed, in this instance, with their financial security in the midst of these trials that they're willing to defraud one another. They're willing to show partiality towards one another rather than live out the obligations of the gospel. So that's where the source of their idolatry lies. It lies in their trust in money over God. In verses 2 to 6, James explains then the consequences of this idolatry when he says, and I'm going to use my own translation here, he says, uh, you desire and do not have, uh, you murder and envy and cannot obtain, you fight and wage war, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wickedly in order that you should spend on your, uh, uh, in order that you should spend on your pleasures. 
Adulteresses, have you not known that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that in vain the Scripture says he jealously desires the spirit which lives in you, but he gives greater grace? Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, these Christians are experiencing trials, remember, and essentially James explains that, at least in this instance, these trials are the consequence of their sin. God loves his bride, he's jealous for her, and what these Christians are demonstrating through their conflicts with each other is that they have eyes for another lover. And that's their money. So God is disciplining his bride in order to bring her to repentance, and that's a consequence of their sin. Starting in verse 7 then, James begins to explain the solution to their troubles. If, if the source of their troubles is their idolatrous faith, then the solution, verse 7, is to repent and turn back to God. Verse 7, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Well, how do they do that? James provides the answer in three steps. We've already looked at two of these. First, he says, resist. Second half of verse 7 and first half of verse 8, he says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Again, it would seem that Satan has a hand in these trials. He's trying to provoke these believers' sin in order to blind the eyes of the unbelieving to the gospel. And again, God is allowing these temptations so that he might rebuke and discipline his bride. So he means it for good, but Satan simply means it for evil. He wants to provoke idolatry and doubt. And unfortunately, this is precisely what he's managed to achieve in the church. Their conflicts with one another indicate that they've fallen sway to this thinking that James calls unspiritual, earthly, demonic, back in chapter 3. And this means that if they want to escape these trials, then they must resist the devil and draw near to God. We see how they're going to resist him in the second half of verse 8, when James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, it's unspiritual and demonic thinking that has produced these these ungodly actions that have uh, provoked the wrath of God. And so if these Christians are going to resist this demonically inspired suffering, then they're going to have to rinse themselves of their ungodliness. That cleansing is going to start in their minds as, as they remember the grace that they've received in Christ, but it will also need to eventually work itself out in their actions, since it is ultimately the ungodly behavior that seems to be inciting the jealousy of God more than anything else. Once again, these are the first two steps that James provides here in in this act of repentance. He tells his readers to resist the devil and to rinse themselves of their impurities. Now this morning in verses 9 to 10, he gets to the third and final step. And the third step is this. Rend. Rend. That's R-E-N-D, rend. I take this word, of course, from the ancient practice of tearing the breast of one's garment in in grief or sometimes even in anger. You, You think of Job, for instance, tearing his robe and shaving his head in grief when he learned of all that had befallen him. That seems to be the picture that James describes here. He says that we must respond to our spiritual adultery with abject sorrow. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep, he says. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. As we reflect on this verse, I want you to do something for a moment that may, that may make you a, a little bit uncomfortable. I want you to picture how you would feel if one day you suddenly cheated on your spouse. I would imagine that for most of the married couples in here, right, we're, you're probably happily married. That's not to say that you and your spouse always get along, but regardless of the imperfections, you still want to be married to them, right? I mean, you may not always like them, right, but you do love them. That's who you want to be with. You probably even have a hard time imagining your life with anyone else. And if you're presently unmarried, I still want you to try to picture for a moment what that felt like at one time. Or if you've never been married, try at least to imagine what it would feel like to be joined together with someone whom you love dearly. I want you to to think for a moment about all the good memories you've had or would have together. The pains that you've endured together. 
how, how they've seen you at your worst and how they still manage to stick with you. And yes, even like you, not just love you, but even like you in spite of it all. I want you to think of the ways that they have loved or would love you. Consider how they've listened to you when you're hurting. And how they stood by you and offered you support when you were discouraged. I think of how they've cared for you when you're sick. Think of how they've celebrated birthdays and anniversaries with you. How they've rejoiced over you. How they've delighted over the fact that they get to be married to you. And then think for a moment of the life that you've built together. Maybe, the, maybe that means you think of a house that you've purchased together, purchased together and then you've turned into a home. And definitely consider the children that you've born and raised together. Think even of their physical beauty. And now I realize that as we age, a lot of us don't have much of that anymore, right? The weather of years has taken some of the shine off. But at least remember how at one time they were beautiful. And how they also thought you were beautiful. And if you've aged, consider how you've seen that initial physical attraction turn into something deeper. Think of how although you once were drawn to their physical beauty, that's not what draws you in anymore. Think of how you've seen your brother and sister grow in Christ. And as you've seen them grow, you've found yourself increasingly drawn in by the beauty of their soul. Just take a moment and consider how wonderful your marriage is and consider most especially how amazing it is that any human being at all, let alone one so as special as your spouse, right, would choose to love you. Now I want you to picture how you would feel if you ever cheated on your spouse. Now, of course, I don't mean the act itself, right? Stay away from the visuals. I mean the aftermath. For whatever reason, someone you find attractive also finds you attractive. And they pursue you. And they run after you. They make attempts at seducing you. And although you're successful at rebuffing their efforts at first, it's finally too much. And in a fit of passion, you gave in. Let's take it even a step further. There are generally two options that a person can pursue once they've done something like this. Either they can confess their sin like David eventually did in Psalm 32. Or they can try to cover it up like David initially tried to do before he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. I want you to suppose that you try to take the latter of these two routes. You try to sweep your unfaithfulness under the rug and pretend it never happened. Now I want you to imagine that your spouse has discovered the affair. Take a moment to imagine the hurt or even the anger that they're expressing at you as they confront you with your unfaithfulness. Think of them storming out of the house. Think of them even rounding up the kids, putting them in the car as they tell you that they're planning to go stay with their parents or in a local hotel for a few nights as they try to figure things out. I want you to imagine what it would be like sitting there alone. Maybe in your bedroom maybe in the living room, wherever this argument took place, you're sitting there alone thinking about all that you might have just lost for those few moments of pleasure. Let the scariness of that moment sink in for a moment. Your spouse may have just left for good, and even if they come back, the relationship is going to be different. They may forgive you, but the memory of that unfaithfulness will never be entirely forgotten. Yes, there's grace to heal, and the two of you may return to the love you once had at first, but never without at least the memory of the fact that at one time you hurt them deeply. In all likelihood, even if they do come back, there will be months of counseling, perhaps years of of trying to reestablish that lost trust once again. And let me ask you, in that moment, would you ever think it was worth it? Of course not, right? So I'll tell you what you'd probably do in that moment as you're sitting in that room there all alone. In all likelihood, you'd start to weep. And I mean weep, right? And the reason you'd weep is because as you sit there in the empty room in the quiet after the storm alone, the thing you're going to realize is how much pain you've caused and how much has been damaged and even lost because of your sin. 
You'd start thinking of what it would be like to be alone without the love of your spouse. You'd be thinking of your kids and how they're never going to look at mom and dad the same again because of what you've done in in hot tears of anger, not at your spouse, but at you for your stupidity, for your foolishness, for all you've thrown away. Would start pouring down your faith as you ask yourself over and over again, what have I done? What have I done? And brothers and sisters, that would be a very healthy and appropriate response in that scenario, would it not? If you did not weep after you put your marriage in jeopardy, then it would be very hard to say that you put much value on your marriage in the first place. Again, just like it is right and good to mourn the loss of a loved one because it expresses how much you've loved them, how much you'll miss them, so also a genuine expression of remorse over one's adultery ought to be accompanied by much sorrow. Well, it's that kind of response, ladies and gentlemen, that James has in mind here. When he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's the remorse of a wayward bride realizing the damage her unfaithfulness has done to her relationship with her husband. And it's this kind of remorse that will always accompany genuine repentance. And just so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, no, bare remorse does not necessarily equate with repentance. The Scripture gives us plenty of examples of men who express some measure of sorrow over their sin without ever repenting of it. Cain, right? And even Judas, for example, they had some measure of sorrow over their sin, and yet they did not actually repent of their sin. They never actually turned to God in their sorrow. Instead, they just mourned the consequence of their sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul even rejoices that this is not how the Corinthians responded to his rebuke. Writing in verses 8 to 10, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, it is more than possible to shed crocodile tears over one's sin without ever actually leading to true repentance. But at the same time, while remorse may not always lead to repentance, still genuine repentance will never occur without it. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, as I just said, a lack of mourning, right? It clearly indicates a lack of concern over the breach of that, that, that one sin has caused in their relationship with God. If someone's not sorrowful over their sin, it, it may mean that they don't love God. Or sad to say, I think this is perhaps even more common in the current church climate. It may mean they simply do not understand the severity of their sin and the degree to which it damages their relationship with God. Again, I think for many Christians, this may be the greater problem. They've been told so much and so often about the love of God that they fail to understand either the holiness or the fatherly discipline of God. Either way, whether it's a lack of love or a lack of understanding of sin, the result is the same. The sinner will not repent because the lack of sorrow indicates that there's not concern enough over what they've done to repent. So that's one reason why sorrow will always accompany Repentance. And number two, don't underestimate this one. The pain of sorrow is actually a very necessary ingredient to produce the change of mind that's required in repentance. Let me say that one more time. The pain of sorrow is actually a very necessary ingredient to produce the change of mind that's required in repentance. The term for repentance, by the way, it's the Greek word metanoia in the New Testament. And it means literally a change of mind. That's what one is doing in repentance. They're determining in their mind to change their way of thinking about something. And that change of mind, right, then works itself up into actions. It's like James has said over and over again, faith inevitably 
manifests itself in action. In the same way, a change of action is rooted in a change of one's mind. And this distinction is critical, by the way. Just as it's possible to have internal sorrow apart from a change in external action and it not be an expression of genuine repentance, so also is the reverse true. It is, it is possible to change one's actions without a change in one's mind, and in that case it cannot be counted as metanoia, repentance. The whole process is critical. The change of mind must occur and it must produce a change in action. Both parts must be there or it is not repentance. So this whole process has to be there and it starts once again with this change of mind. Well, guys, let me ask you, what produces this change of mind? I'll tell you at least one thing that will help move it along. And that's pain. Again, we tend to view all painful emotions as, as negative or unhealthy ones, but friends, the truth is, Pain is one of the more useful emotions that you will ever experience. Back when I was younger, maybe around first grade, uh, my brother and I were sitting in the family truck while my mom uh, ran into the local convenience store to grab a few things. And as we're sitting there, my brother pulled out the car cigarette lighter, and, and he dared me to touch it, and I refused at first. I said, no way, I don't, I'm not stupid, I don't want to get burned, Right? He said, come on, look, you're not going to hurt yourself. And he proceeded to put his finger on it a few times. And then he put it back in, and unbeknownst to first grade me, he actually turned it on. And determined not to be labeled a chicken, I quickly grabbed the cigarette lighter, held it up to my finger. It was glowing red hot. And I still remember my brother yelling, no, Ryan, wait. But it was too late. I put my finger on the cigarette lighter. And I kept it there, stunned for a few moments, as I watched my flesh smoke and sizzle in the car. I can tell you what, guys. uh, I learned how car cigarette lighters worked that day. And to this day, I'm, I'm actually still extremely cautious when I handle it. That's the benefit of pain. It's the benefit of pain. It doesn't just warn you of dangers, right? But it it teaches you through intense negative reinforcement to stay away from those dangers and not repeat the same mistake again. And that's why James actually commands, guys, listen, commands his readers here to feel bad. Sorrow is a very necessary step in producing a change in one's mind. And that's because it's the pain of sorrow that that leads us to determine to ourselves, I'm never going to do that again. Do you understand? It's it's when we taste the the bitterness of our sin that we say to ourselves, why did I ever want that in the first place? And at that point, right, the blinders are off. The temptation doesn't hold its power anymore. The sin even becomes disgusting and repulsive instead of attractive. You often need pain to teach you that lesson, and that's a gift that God gives to His children to draw Him to Himself. Again, He disciplines them. Unfortunately, I would venture to say that many of us don't feel that kind of sorrow over sin very often. And that truly is unfortunate. When we consider how incredibly necessary sorrow is in our repentance and healing. I've already alluded to at least a few of the reasons why this might be. It, it, you know, it may be, for instance, that we've, brought, we, we've bought into this very worldly idea that, that we should only be happy all the time. Again, that's not Scripture. Yes, God wants us to be happy, and, and we should desire to be happy. But to think that this means that we should never feel bad is nothing more than a satanic lie meant to keep us in bondage. Again, Satan wants to keep us in bondage to sin. And if that means, if if pain is beneficial to our repentance, well, then obviously he wants us to avoid that experience. And one of the ways he's going to do that is by telling us a half-truth, by selling us a false religion which says that God only wants us to feel good things all of the time. This, again, seems to be an incredibly common philosophy in the church. And that may be one reason why we fail to experience godly sorrow. We avoid it because we think it's somehow wrong to ever feel bad about our sin. I've also said that we simply may not love God enough to feel sorrow over our sin. I think that's probably 
a very common experience for many people as well. They may like God. They may even want to know Him in addition to their idols. But they certainly don't love Him more than their idols. In short, they're, they're double-minded, as James says at the end of verse 8. They really do have two commitments. And so as much as they may like God, they're really not sorry over their sin. They, they aren't genuinely uh, repentant. They are unrepentant. And so they feel no sorrow. There's another reason. And like I've already said, it's also possible that we may not understand the severity of our sin. Either we've bought into the world's philosophies by believing that most of what the Bible has traditionally labeled as sins are not sins. Or we've bought into a distorted picture of the gospel which says that our sin no longer affects our relationship with God in any way, which I explained last week is simply not true. Either way, we don't feel the severity of the breach our sin causes on our relationship with God enough to feel sorrowful. These are all possible reasons why we may have trouble feeling sorrow over our sin, but there's at least one more reason why this might be so. And I've been trying to build to it here over the course of this message. I think if you look here in verses 9 to 10, there's a very specific deterrence that James seems to have in mind. And that's the feeling of fear. You know how I keep saying that or you know how I keep saying that Satan doesn't tell flat-out lies as much as he does distort the truth well hebrews 2 says that he uses the fear of death specifically to keep men subject to lifelong slavery now fear once again is not always a bad emotion there are very healthy types of fear like now i have a very slight sort of apprehension when handling car cigarette lighters that's not necessarily bad because a car cigarette lighter could hurt me So fear isn't always bad. In fact, the Bible even extols the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. You see, there's a sense in which we should fear death, right? Because the Bible tells us that it has been appointed for man once to die, and then after this comes judgment. So it isn't the fear of the Lord that's necessarily bad, or even the fear of death. Again, the writer of Ecclesiastes even says it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. There's a very healthy fear of death that comes from a very healthy fear of God, which ultimately produces wisdom. But there's also an unhealthy fear of death, which stems from an unhealthy fear of God. The healthy form of fear leads us to respond to the wrath of God by running to Him to seek His mercy and grace. Whereas the unhealthy form of fear causes us to run from God in an effort to escape his judgment. Adam, for instance, right? He initially expresses this type of fear when he tries to cover his nakedness and hide from God in the garden. The Pharisees expressed it by sowing figurative fig leaves in the form of their self-righteous works. Judas expressed it by going out and hanging himself. There are many ways that we can try to run from the wrath of God, but perhaps the most common way is expressed here in verse 9 and that's with laughter and feasting in other words we drown out our fears and our sorrows Uh, maybe we do that with entertainment or recreation or purchases but however we do that the point is that we go into the house of mirth and we try to convince ourselves that everything is all right that we are happy and that all is well, when we know deep down secretly that everything is not well. In short, we try to sear our conscience and tell it to stop telling us to fear God. And if you think of how Satan produces this kind of response, it's by convincing us that God is holy and just, but He is not merciful and good. Right? That's the lie he told Eve. And Adam and Eve believed it. And and that became evident even after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they went and hid themselves. Even, Even still, they did not completely trust the goodness of God. It's like I've said so often over the past several weeks, Satan acts as a kind of prosecuting attorney, but then he uses lies and half truths to provoke our sin. And one such lie is God is just, and you're guilty, and he'll never accept you anymore. 
And again, that's only a half-truth. Yes, he is just, and you are guilty. That part is true. But what's not true is that he will not accept you anymore. The good news of the gospel is that although we are sinners and worthy of the wrath of God, he still loves us. And that's been demonstrated by the fact that God has even offered up his own son on the cross to make an atonement for our sins. Right? The cross at the same time proclaims that God both judges sin and forgives the sinner. So if we, we no longer need to deny our sin or, or cover up our sorrow over our sins. Since in the words of 1 John 1, 9, if, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you think about what James has been saying over the past several chapters, it's this same kind of unhealthy fear that swept over the churches that he's writing to. It's like he said over and over again, their conflicts indicate that they've forgotten who they are in Christ. They don't remember the gospel anymore. And how is that forgetfulness manifested itself? Verses 2 and 3, they're not even asking God for things anymore. Or even when they do ask, they're asking him to give them their idols. In short, they don't trust him anymore. They don't have confidence in his love anymore. They don't have faith in him. And so they're turning to other lovers for love and affection. So look now one more time at how James combats this thinking. Verses 5 and 6, he says, You suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then again, verse 10, in his conclusion, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. He reminds his readers once again that God is good. And that the only reason he disciplines them is because he loves them so very much. And he wants them to return to him again. And so there is grace and mercy to be found in his presence. There has to be if he desires their return and affection so badly. Friends, brothers and sisters, I realize that there may be some of you here this morning who are wrestling with unconfessed and unrepented sin. In other words, you know you are committing or have committed spiritual adultery. That might be in the form of a love for things or the desire for human approbation and praise. It might come in the form of a desire for pleasure or physical comfort. Whatever it is, you know that there's an idol that you're trying to hold on to and you're very reluctant to let it go. And as you clutch that idol, I also realize that sometimes the hardest part of letting go is the fear of how your divine husband will treat you once you admit the deed. Quite simply, you won't even acknowledge your unfaithfulness because you're afraid of what will happen once you do acknowledge it. Friends, Christians, right? Bride of Christ. You have to understand that your husband, while jealous for you, he isn't vindictive. He doesn't want to make you pay for the wounds you inflicted on him. No, you have a husband who will instead even bear those wounds for you and will spread his covering over you and protect you and hide your shame. He doesn't want you to pay. He wants you to be healed. He wants you to turn. And if you would just turn from your sin, his anger would turn to delight so quickly. And he would be so happy over your restoration. You don't have anything to fear in his presence. It's only when you run from him that his jealousy is aroused. And so I'd encourage you, enter into his presence and confess your sin and weep and mourn and generally feel bad. It's okay. It's okay to feel bad. There's even healing in feeling bad. I know so much of the time we think that the solution to feeling bad is to feel good, but it's not the solution. The solution to feeling bad when, when your sin is the cause of that is to turn. It's to repent. The solution is to draw near to God 
and to feel bad in His presence. It's to weep before Him so that He can speak words of comfort to you and heal you. So don't hesitate to bring your sin to Him. Don't hesitate to confess it for fear of feeling bad. Again, friends, I realize that it's not common to embrace emotions like sorrow. After all, these emotions don't feel very good. But you have to understand that they're also necessary for your restoration and healing. So if you're sitting here this morning realizing perhaps that there's some type of unconfessed sin in your life, again, I would urge you, don't just resist the devil. And don't just rinse your heart and your mind and your hands, but also rend your garments and express your sorrow to your Lord. Don't deny the sorrow that you feel over your sin. Instead, embrace it. Do what James commands here. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And do this knowing that as you humble yourself before the Lord, He will exalt you. In the book of Hosea, God rebukes and corrects Israel for her spiritual adultery, while at the same time promising restoration if she would come back to Him. And with that in mind, I close with these words of encouragement from Hosea 14. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the works of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And then God says this in reply. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take the root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. Let's pray.